Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you for joining me. Today, we speak to a pro in the world of government and private sector communications. Her name is Tanya Bose, and at the moment, at this time in her career, she is the Director of Corporate Affairs at the CSIRO, which is the Australian National Scientific Organisation. Tanya is a communications and brand professional with over 20 years experience, and she has skills relating to communications, brand strategy, public relations, issues management, stakeholder communications, and indeed in her current role, a lot of government relations and understanding how to represent the interests of CSIRO, uh, not only inside government, but outside of government. Um, She's led many organisations in both the public and private sectors, currently, as I said, managing corporate affairs at the CSIRO, uh, but she was also the General Manager of Communications at Destination New South Wales and has held positions and senior marketing and communications positions across Asia Pacific, the United Kingdom and in Europe and working both client and agency side. So a real skilled professional. She joins me on the line now from Sydney. Tanya, thanks very much for joining me on GovComs. Thank you so much, David. Thanks for the uh, invitation and the kind introduction. I feel very, very old, actually. <laughs> well, not as old as I am, so there you go. <laughs> uh, but listen, I, I think what's, what, what I'd be interested in just starting on is really that, that change from private to um, the public sector. I know a destination mm-hmm. New South Wales was, I think it might have been your first job in government. Can you think back that far and and perhaps explain what you saw as the differences coming from one to the other and how you were able to adapt? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. Um, yeah, it was an, it's a very interesting role at Destination New South Wales. So I was general manager for communications and at that time um, the role took into account publicity um, government engagement, uh, ministerial, mostly ministerial liaison, and also editorial and content. Um, and uh, Destination New South Wales is a government agency, and its its aim is to attract visitors to the state. So its its um its goal was was very clear actually, doubling overnight expenditure by 2020. Um, the shift for me, I was expecting it to be really quite significant. Um, I think we all have, you know, views on on how how another industry or another organisation might operate, um, and I was I was kind of right in some ways and wrong in others. I think, um, you know, for Destination New South Wales, they had a very very clear goal, and I think when you have a clear goal, whether you're in private or public sector, it enables you to focus your activities with with quite a kind of laser sharp focus. I think what I was expecting was I thought the pace would be slower and this is just informed by my own perceptions. I thought, well, you know, it'd probably be a bit slower. It'll probably be quite hard to get things done. Um, and actually I was, I was proved 
completely the opposite. It was a very dynamic and fast-paced environment. And I think that that was because, particularly at Destination New South Wales, it was informed by decisions and, and by the environment from an ex external consumer. So the, the, the visitor, whether they're business or, or um, a holiday maker that's got a choice of you know millions of destinations to choose from and millions of places to go and spend their money. And so um, it was an organisation that was very much informed by data, by, by what the media were telling us, by, by what consumers were telling us. We have obviously had a lot of visitor data to tell us whether our, whether our plans and campaigns were working. So I found that that was actually very fast paced. Um, from the, the relationship, that was, that was probably you know, the first time I worked directly um, in terms of government relations with ministerial department you know, and, and we had changes of ministers from a state level. I think I was there for, you know, I think I had maybe three or four um, changes in ministers and ministerial staff during that time. Um, and that that was very different, you know, um, in a private enterprise, you have a broad, you know, broad definition of your external stakeholders and internal stakeholders, but they stay pretty steady. So your, your, your executive team and your major stakeholders often stay steady. You know, at, a, at, a, at that first government role, they were there was there was change, which means that you know there are slight different ways that people like to to um, interact, information the way they like information presented. Um, but I think I always took the approach that uh, forewarned is forearmed. That's certainly um, something that I'm very clear on in in managing relationships with with government, and and also just I think it gave me the opportunity to bring. A private sector view of managing content, stories, and opportunities to to bring a broader perspective into the ministerial engagement. You know, take us out from things that might be um, kind of obvious ministerial opportunities and look at things that may have previously been thought of as just pure PR opportunities and try and find a way to make them um, come together in a in a more kind of you know accessible way. So that advice around, you know, forewarned is, is forearmed, what advice would you have for people who are dealing with a, a change in ministerial office as is happening now uh, in some cases here, uh, just for our um, uh, listeners from overseas, Australia has just had a general election. There has been a retention of the government. Um, they, they stay on, but obviously new government means new new ministers. And so people not only in Australia, but I know around the world are dealing with this. So what, what advice do you have to people as to how to effectively manage that transition from one political leader to the next? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think I try and take it, take it to the point of, you know, how do we form basic relationships with anyone? Um, and it's formed on, you know, trust, which is built from being, you know, reliable, and available, um, and and to be able to um, to build, I think a you know a face-to-face -face relationship and a personal relationship as quickly as you can. Um, so I think whenever there's a if there's a change in, a, in you know ministerial office staff or or, um, or or your relationships in with departments, is to you know kind of quickly reach out, um, recognise that that those offices if they are going through change, you know they've got a lot to deal with. Um, so being respectful of the fact that you might not be the most important um, call that they need to take that day 
and being accepting of that and respectful of the time and making sure that when you do get that first opportunity to interact with a new um, with a new stakeholder, whether that's ministerial staff department or, or otherwise, you know, recognising that time is a very valuable commodity. Those people are pressed. They've got a lot of things to get through. They've normally got very big, very complex portfolios. Is being very clear on what are the key issues I need to let you know about. What are the things that are, you know, giving confidence that they're well managed, that you're under control. So making sure that even if you're not the point person running on a particular issue, that you're very familiar with it, so that you can talk with confidence, um, and and using the time wisely. And then I think, you know, for me, it's always making sure that, you know, not every call is is a call of, um, you know, a crisis or a news opportunity. That sometimes you're just checking in, and looking at the relationship, trying to trying to um, shape it in a really early stage to be about listening and receiving information as much as imparting information. I think a lot of the time with stakeholder management, we're trying to get our information across so quickly that we sometimes forget to ask what's on their mind and what you can help them with. That's an interesting question um, because I was about to ask you, what what is it that you think is the most common issue that is on a ministerial staffer's mind? Oh, gosh. Um, look, I think it's, um, you know, that no surprises, um, that no surprises piece is probably where I would go to, I'm not a minister, I'm not a staffer, but if I was in that position and where I always come to with that first kind of information part is, you know, what are the things that is keeping the agency or that, that person up at, up at night and, and making sure that there's, there's transparency. So it would be, you know, making sure I know where all the issues are, that I know that there's a plan in place for them to be managed, that, um, that I'm aware of where the sensitivities are, but also, um, you know, the opportunities because, you know, the the the, the staffers are, are supporting someone who wants to make a difference and wants to make an impact, and and often the the, the departments and the agencies are are the way to provide them with, you know, information and evidence that that enables them to forward that. So, I think it's you know being being really clear where the sensitivities are and and providing that information and then being equally paying as much attention to where the opportunities are and and not just focusing the conversation on all the things that that um you know might be worrying them but where the opportunities are too and this this issue of time i think is 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 really relevant as well isn't it because as you say they're very busy enormous workloads lots to do they're in a hurry because they're Mm. often they're their, their political master is in a hurry because they want to get things done. There's only a certain amount of time before there's the next election. So mm. they're in a hurry. So in terms of presenting that information, do you find that presenting information visually is, is a good way to go about it? Or, or how, what, what's the best yeah. way that you've found to be able to get people across the brief as quickly as possible? I think... Um Visual visual presentation is good as long as you're not leading someone through a laborious slide pack, you know. And I mean that in the nicest possible and respectful way to communicators, because we are we are great at putting together information that will lead people through a story. But sometimes you'll be with an audience, you know, yeah. a, a person, an end user who just wants to get to the punchline. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's about kind of reading when when that's appropriate. And sometimes I think it's just good to ask. 
you know, ask, I've got I've got an information pack. Is it useful for us to go through that? Or do you just want me to talk to the kind of top five things? And yeah. normally you'll find that, um, well, I certainly find anyway, that, that people then kind of relax and think, oh, good, okay. Yeah, why don't we start with the five and then I'll go back to number three. Number three seems like it's a really good opportunity. Let's talk more about number three. Yeah. I, look, I think that's just fantastic advice for anyone is to be curious. And before you start talking, ask – and if you do start talking, start by asking questions. Start by really digging in to try to find where those issues are and how you can create the most value and most impact and then just let everything else slide to one side. Because I imagine, you know, and as we move now into discussing um, – you know, the CSIRO, Australia's National Science Organisation, that, you know, there's no lack of information there to uh, present to the, to the minister. It's about understanding what it is that they want to know about. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, I was really staggered when I came into the CSIRO. Um, not staggered by the by the sheer volume that they cover, but but by the impact and where to start. And I think you and I have had discussions, David, that CSIRO's content is like drinking from a fire hose. Um, and so finding that finding that starting point is is really critical because it just you you run the risk of really great information ending up like like wallpaper and just background noise. So I think for me, yeah, you know, I've always been fortunate that I've worked with organisations where they've been led by a clear purpose. And if they haven't had one, then we've we've helped create one. And for the CSIRO, you know, we've we've really tried to return to our purpose, which is embodied in our in our Act of Parliament, which we were created in 1949, the SIR Act, which is which is really in in a shortened form is solving the greatest challenges through science and technology. And so we've used that as a, a real anchor point for um, you know kind of the litmus test on, you know, is, is is what we're about to communicate really answering why we've been created and what we're put here to do. Um, and if it doesn't, then then we either find a way that we can, um, you know, get to the heart of it or, or it doesn't kind of make the cut through the messaging framework. So for me, it's it's been about start with our purpose and then be very clear in terms of, um, you know, the the lines of inquiry and evidence as a as a science organisation that will support that and help demonstrate. Um, and I think the other challenge has been in a large organisation like the CSIRO that's been around for more than a hundred years, is how do you make an organisation like that relevant and accessible and appealing? Um, because it's only through hitting those three markers, being relevant, accessible, and appealing, that you can hope to build trust and awareness and understanding and all those good things that in a private company um, sells products, you know, in a consumer goods company sells products and services, but in a government organisation really demonstrates to the taxpayer why, where their spend is going and whether it's being put to good use. With that, what is the single biggest challenge that you're facing at the moment to deliver on that promise of solving the greatest challenges through science and technology and to accomplish it by being relevant, accessible and appealing? What's your, what's your biggest problem? Um, look, it's, it's probably a saturation of message, which I think we're all facing. Actually, you're facing that whether you're working in 
in government or um, or in a, a private sector company. You know, um, we're at this point where we are spending um, about 800 hours on our mobile internet in a year. Um, we're spending about almost 500 minutes on your on your media, consuming media. Um, and it's it's growing. And at home, the the online the hours that we spend online have, have grown significantly. So I think there's a recent Roy Morgan poll that said, you know, we're spending nearly 14.9 billion hours at home online compared to 7 billion everywhere else, so work and school and wherever else you might be. So trying to get a message as significant as we're solving, your, you know, the greatest challenges is actually quite hard. You know, it is really hard. And, and, and I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges is how do you cut through all of the noise and everything grabbing grabbing attention? And we call it now the attention economy. You know, that's that's the share that we're trying to get is people's attention. How do you do that in such a cluttered landscape? And how are you doing that? Mm. Through um, through being really razor sharp in the stories, in the content that we're developing. So again, we come back to, we start with a purpose. Everything's anchored in the purpose. Does the story demonstrate that we are solving the greatest challenges through science and technology? And, and when I say story, I'm, I'm just using that as a, as a loose kind of reference point because it can be your conversation with um, with a minister's office or with the department or with your fellow agency colleagues. It could be with a journalist. It could be with a member of the public because my team also manages our inquiries line with the general public. So we we start with that piece, which is ground everything in the purpose, and then um, you know from a make sure that we're um, you know presenting the information in a way that that demonstrates the impact. So we had an example um, last year where uh, we partnered with an organisation called um, Hawk Culture to solve one of the challenges, which is food waste. So the amount of food that we throw away um, and, and, you know, this imperfect vegetables. There's only so many imperfect vegetables we can buy from our supermarkets. They all look really cute um, with a new labelling, but there's only so many we can buy. And so we partnered with an organisation to, to look at how we could be more creative with food waste. And one of the first pilot projects that the team had in a, um, one of our areas of science was that they were taking broccoli and they were turning it into powder. And this broccoli could get you one tablespoon of this powder of broccoli would um, would be the equivalent of a head of broccoli. So it solved a great food waste problem, but it also addressed um, one of our other challenges around health and well-being. Um, the team looked at that and and they created a very, you know, they had a very creative slant on it, which was to turn that into a story about broccoli lattes. So we, you know, we're all, I, I overheard someone yesterday say, oh, well, that really appealed to the, the latte sipping mob. You know, we, we do have a culture where we, we find that curious, you know, we're obsessed with coffee and there was the turmeric coffees last year. So, you know, the, the communications team had a creative way of saying, look, we think we can get traction with Actually, instead of starting from the the food waste angle, we'll, we'll come at it with a really creative angle. They, they served up broccoli lattes and we had lots of, you know, funny TV people really enjoying the, the way that that broccoli latte tasted. And in fact, we took it to our parliamentary showcase at, at um, Parliament House in October and, and Senator Carr tried the, um, the broccoli latte too. And I don't think it was too appealing to any of them. <laughs> but that's kind of beside the point. It was a creative way 
to get cut through, to tell a story, but importantly, to not leave it there as, you know, here's this funny thing that the CSIROs invented, but to take it back to some of our greatest challenges around food waste and the health and well-being of our, of our people. And these are two ways that we are helping solve some of those challenges. So it's, it's really about that creativity, um, but making sure it's grounded in something that's real, Interesting, though, you, you, you raised that question or the opportunity of partnering, and it's something that I'm very interested in at the moment, this notion of who can we work with, who's got our audience, uh, who can contribute, who can we collaborate with? Because I think often as government, we think we have to go it alone because we have to stand apart. But I think there's you know so much more opportunity if we can just lift our chins a little bit and look around to see who else we can work with. And I imagine an organisation like the CSIRO, there'd be a real appetite for other companies if the CSIRO to, were to approach them because there is such prestige in that, that you could really bring together some really great and powerful collaborations. Mm, I think, you know, we, we collaboration, I think, is... is it's such an important. Um, it's it's so important for for us as as a as the CSIRO, but also I think as communications professionals, is that I, I think sometimes we feel like we've got to solve things on our own, and actually, um, you know, if there's nothing else that I've learned over the last twenty odd years, we'll leave the odd as you know <laughs> question mark twenty odd years, is that you don't have to solve everything yourself is actually there's often fantastic ideas that you would never have come across without collaborating. And the CSIRO science is, is absolutely um, delivered with collaboration. I think people often don't realise that the I in CSIRO is industry. And so that's the way that we take science from benchtop, from a brilliant idea, into something that actually can be in people's hands. That's how the Relenza flu vaccine came came about, um, the total wellbeing diet. Um you know, the, the vaccine for Hendra virus, all of those things needed partnership with industry. They had to have collaboration. And I think as communications professionals, we need to embrace the media landscape, our colleagues in other departments, in other industries, in private sector, to look at how you could partner on like-minded issues to get a better impact. And it's a better impact for you, for the partner, but also for the consumer, because they get a much more rounded representation of, of what the impact of, in our case, science can actually have in their everyday lives. So as a as a leader of your team, how do you encourage your team to, to get out from behind their desks and to go and have those conversations, whether it's inside the branch that they're working in, whether it's inside the department, whether it's outside the department, whether it's with industry, how do you encourage them and give them the room and the space and the confidence that they have permission to seek out these collaborations? Mm. I think it's about, um, I think actually in this day and age, you do need to be explicit to say you're welcome to and in fact encouraged to go and have those conversations. Um, I think the conversations with industry happen, and, and certainly the university sector happen naturally within CSIRO because we're collaborating on the science. And so often there's a natural pass through to the communications person to continue the relationship. Um, I think with the, and at the department level, often our, our government is, is a major customer of the CSIRO product, so that happens naturally. But where it doesn't, um, we, we we talk a lot about just being really clear on, um, on where the 
stakeholders are, you know, it's it's it goes back to a, an example of old stakeholder mapping, which is, okay, I'm working on this problem or I'm working on this um, story idea. Where could potential collaboration partners come from? And then um, identifying them early and ensuring that you know that you've got permission to go out and do that. Um, you know, no one no one writes the plan specifically for you. You you need to create that. And and I think in some ways, um, you know, it goes back to the relationship point that we talked about earlier. Is is not be afraid to pick up the phone and to meet people. Go out for a coffee. Establish relationships across departments, across agencies. Um, because I think from that very early conversation, it's amazing the amount of um, connections that then get made. It's it's a real kind of spider's web of a network once you once you do get out from behind the desk. Mm. And I, I I certainly think that as technology becomes more central to the way information is transferred and moved around in the economy, I think for the communications professional, this is a this is a piece of the ground that we can. Um, colonise in in lots of ways to be the leaders of 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 the conversation um, and getting out there because I, you know a lot of communications people have that personality where they like to have a conversation they like to go and meet people but I think it's something that you know communications can really uh, bring enormous value to their organisations by by knowing a lot of people and by getting out there and having those conversations. Yeah, it's so true. Um, I think, you know, I've seen a great example, um, actually, Virginia Cook at the department, who's who's brought together, you know, helped actually bring together the group of agencies underneath that department to, to communicate and share information. That's a really great way of, you know, a leadership role actually creating a structure. But it's those informal catch-ups and conversations, I think, that are equally as important. And my only concern about technology, David, is I think, you know, sometimes there's an over-reliance on, you know, well, I sent an email, right. therefore yep. the relationship's built. Um, and and we all know that that's just not how it works. In, and in some ways, when we talked about that cut-through, we face that every day in the way that we receive communication. It's the person that picks up the phone to me that will get the most attention because it's so unusual for people to call to just chat through an idea or what do you think or you know, that that I will always take those phone calls because they're such rare opportunities and I'd love them not to be like that. I'd, I'd actually love all my communicators to be on the phone all the time. Mm. So, listen, just returning to this, this challenge of the attention economy and you, you mentioned this notion of content and the ability to create and distribute content, um, the abundance of content, but by by grounding your stories and the content that you're creating in that in that clear purpose with that understanding of what the mission is around being relevant and accessible and appealing. How important is it um, for the stories that you're telling for the various uh, areas of CSIRO that they be told consistently, that they turn up regularly, that they that there's a, a thread almost through those stories that are continuing to um, you know, earn a share, I suppose, of, of people's most valuable asset which is their time and their attention yeah it's it's so critical i can't overestimate that <clears throat> um and i think when you're in an organization where there's just lots of really interesting stuff it's tempting that you just throw everything out there and see what sticks 
And but but these days it's not enough just to have something really interesting to say. It has to be all intelligently linked and ordered together. Um, I think sometimes when we look at you know social media, it, it all looks like a massive jumble. But you can see the organisations that have a really well thought through content strategy. Um, now, as a consumer, you probably don't see that necessarily. But the net result is, you know, you become more, much more loyal to that organisation. You're more likely to follow and share. Um, you're mo much more likely to have a deeper engagement. And as we know, with changes to things like the Facebook algorithms, um, you know, that that is so critical for organisations that aren't going to be, you know, throwing a lot of money behind um, spends or profiles, having a really strong, clear content strategy, clear themes, a consistent tone of voice, um, but something that still enables you to um, have a bit of fun where you need to or to really cut through in your messages is, is, is critical. And I think you touched on that consistency piece. Um, you know, everyone is so um, concerned about trust. You know, we, we talk about trust falling and and we know in the last year we've been particularly challenged around trust but um you know the key to trust is is people knowing who you are and what you do and what you stand for and turning up consistently now if you keep turning up as something different every time they see you you know you've got no chance about building and maintaining trust so i think you know i would really would encourage no one to underestimate the importance of a very clear very purposeful content strategy that's um you, you know that's extremely well aligned and and you know so much so that that where I've put content and content strategy is 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 probably my one of my biggest priorities this year this coming coming year in um from a communications perspective for the CSIRO because we we have to ensure that we're showing up consistently and that that people can see what we are trying to deliver for the for the country and in terms of that, the, the distribution challenge, so if, you, if we say we've got the story straight, we've got it grounded in our mission, we understand our purpose, we've now got that rhythm that our strategy enables us and gives us that certainty and clarity about what's, what's coming up, how do people make judgments about whether it's a story to be told online or a story to be told offline or how, in fact, you will tell a, a particular story with using a mix of both. How, what's your advice around trying to understand how do you bring those two together to, to make a powerful impact? Oh, that's such a great question and one that I think we grapple with all the time. Um, look, I think... I think one thing's for sure is that uh, gone are the days where you get to pick one story and put it out everywhere because um, it just doesn't get the cut through that you need. So whether it's a, you know, a story that you're, it used to be that you, you, you know, everyone would feel like they could tick the box if it went out in a press release and it, and it was tweeted and it went up on Facebook and LinkedIn and, you know, you felt like you had a really good integrated strategy, but the reality is, is that half of that stuff just doesn't stick. Um, I think you do have to look at each channel and really understand your audience and understand that some content is is better on one channel than another. I certainly know that we've been we've been looking at growing um, Instagram and our engagement in Instagram and by no means do we have huge numbers of audiences. But 
I think the team has really understood what formula works and what stories work for Instagram and what doesn't. And part of it is about allowing your communications teams to experiment a little, you know, let them try out things. Your audience will tell you quite quickly when something doesn't work or not. And it's not the end of the world if it doesn't. Um, it's actually use it as information to to learn and start shaping and building your strategy. And, and every time you make a mistake or you have a huge success, it's it's um it's information that helps is kind of grist for the wheels it helps you helps you work out how to shape your strategy mm. and then every now and then you know try something really out of the box um you know try try a different kind of engagement maybe try a different medium um you know potentially look at a different way of, of shaping a message um so that you can you know again test to see if it enables you to get better traction and i think the other piece is um, you know, we all have content guidelines and community guidelines that we create to give us that consistency. And while I am certainly a champion for consistency, I'm also a great supporter in that, you know, we've got great, bright people who are working in our teams who, you know, know the audiences really well is give them a little bit of freedom and flexibility to, to try some stuff. And how, and, and how in terms of that experimentation, because the, the Mary Meeker report that comes out annually was out, uh, out again this year, we, uh, this week, which is all about the internet and the growth of the internet and the impact of the internet. And, and some of the statistics that sort of caught my eye is obviously the importance of, of mobile now. Um, you know, the numbers mm. are, are, are massive, but the growth in connectivity, the speed of connectivity and really the power now of video and the preference for video. Mm. How are you getting on top of the gorilla that is video and making it uh, relevant to your audiences and being able to keep up the supply of video to, to your audiences? Yeah, I think we're still grappling with it in all honesty. Um, I think that with the production of video, um, where we've come from is, is you know, that it needs to be a really polished, really slick, um, you know, piece of footage. And, and I think that what you've just described and our audiences are telling us they just don't have time for that. And, and we don't have time for that anymore. So um, where we're going is we're picking key, um, key pieces of research, for example, that, that we need to have really good in-depth explanations on so, so particularly for science you know areas that are quite complex um, investing the time in um, developing those pieces of, of content but also i think increasingly we're going to need to adapt that strategy to to capture more um you know more i guess more real or more in the moment time so you know, I think, you know, one of these challenges that we talked about, about the CSIRO being relevant, accessible and appealing or anyone being relevant, accessible, appealing is 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 about almost letting people into sort of the behind the scenes. So for the scientists, you know, people have this view of science, scientists being, you know, people in white coats and um, it all being very secret. I think video is going to give us that opportunity um, and in probably a much less highly produced way to capture the work that our, our scientists are doing at their bench tops and at the, in the field and turn around those videos, get them out very quickly. And, th and that's certainly something that we're grappling with right now. Mm. Well, I don't think you're alone on that one. I think we're all trying to uh, 
understand what is the the secret sauce and uh, it's it's yeah it's look it's all part of this wonderful time that we're in at the moment I think that where you you mentioned that word before around experimentation you know I think we're all going to be experimenting and and and, but as soon as we sort of drop on something that we think is going to be a winner you know something something you know 5g will come along and then all of a sudden it's like oh okay that's so last so last week, we're now going to have to do something else. So that exactly that, right. that agile mentality is really going to have to be yeah. baked into communications teams it to is. understand it that, is. you know, you're really going to have to do it. Now, listen, you've been very generous with your time, but no one gets away without a question about measurement. How are you going with the big challenge around, uh, you know, being able to demonstrate to the senior executives that the money that they're investing with you um, to support the business of CSIRO is well spent? Mm. Yeah, good question. And and I think um, measurement is so critical to demonstrating the success because, um, you know, even in great times where you're getting a lot of media coverage and, you you know, you feel like your channels are growing, um, you always need the evidence to 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 support you. So we measure, we actually look at lead and lag measures. So lead measures looking at um, obviously measuring our social media audience, audience reach, engagement. Um, We look at, um, you know, dwell times to websites, views on blogs. So we're quite, we have some general measures, but then we also have quite specific ones. So when we're running a campaign, we want to know. So for example, we're running a a new campaign, which is a business to business campaign through, some of the um, domestic airport lounges, and we want to see there's a very specific call to action. So we'll we will measure how um, how how effective that call to action is, or how effective that campaign is, and that will help us, you know, work out whether it's something that we would try again or not. So we have those lead measures around, you know, things that you can instantly get a gauge for, and then every year we run a um, sentiment survey. So you know, our Australian taxpayers fund the CSIRO largely so we we find out what they think about us and so we use an external organization and they measure um, you know largely around uh, trust awareness and perceptions uh, we do that every year we also do that with them um, with with a business audience as well which is fairly new we introduced that I think in the last three years um, and that gives us a good yardstick now it's not perfect because as we know you know something like trust is not just about it's not not just something that you can directly impact. You know, you can't say, well, I want people to trust me more, so I'm going to run this campaign or that campaign. It's a whole range of factors, um, not least actually people seeing you, you showing up, um, that they can start to form an opinion of you. But it's also influenced by a lot of external factors. So it's not perfect, but I think regardless of that, it's still important to keep measuring because you get that really valuable trend analysis over time. Um, and you can start to see where the the communications interventions that you ran had a difference and where they didn't. Um, so so we, we do measure those. We report them uh, on a very regular basis. So the sentiment surveys happen annually um, and then the, the, the metrics are tracked on a monthly basis and they go into a tracking report that I share with the executive team and the CSIRO leadership team, of which I'm a part of, on a monthly basis. Mm. So they've got complete transparency and visibility into what works and what doesn't. And how are you going? Good. Good. <laughs> um, you know, the challenge for the CSIRO is is that we have we have very high awareness, so it's sort of ninety percent awareness. Um, people it's, like it's, us. It's what the 
it's one of the top three most trusted brands in Australia. It isn't is. It? it is. Yeah. Yeah, in terms of iconic brands, so um, the Red Cross, the Bureau of Meteorology, CSIRO. Yeah. Um, and we kind of bounce around. The Red Cross always seems to maintain them the most trusted position, not surprisingly. Um, I think the challenge for us is is that people like us and they know us, but they don't really kind of can't really describe really well what we do. And that that's a broad, because um, I think in some demographics they know very well what we do. But, but generally... What I would like is that, that that the Australian population knows why we're here, and they know the they, they know the impact, and they know us beyond um, beyond the big things, beyond you know I kind of call them the sugar hits, you know, beyond mm. Wi-Fi, beyond mm. the total well-being diet, beyond polymer banknotes. That they know what we're doing today to solve Australia's to solve Australia's challenges today, like food security, like creating future industries like having sustainable energy and resources they know the challenges that we're working on today so i think yes we're going well but that we could do more and and for me it's in that area of awareness and more understanding and that's content's absolutely key to that well congratulations with all your success and thank you very much for your service because i think this is one of the great things about working in the public sector is that you must feel a real sense of of purpose around your work that there is a real community impact and when you put your head on your pillow whichever capital city it is that you may be in or rural part of Australia whichever day of the week it is because I know you have a very busy job where you travel a lot you must must go to sleep with a lot of sense of satisfaction. I do. I, you know, everyone. I'm sure everyone says they've got the best job in Australia. I think I've got the best job in Australia, if not the world. Um, yeah, I'm in awe of the the work that is delivered, and I'm in awe of the scientists and how um, humble they are. You know, they they are so humble about the work that they're doing, and it's the communicator's job to try and you know get those messages out there and ensure that everyone really understands the the impact that they're making. But yeah, I sleep pretty soundly. <laughs> very good. Okay, Tanya, well, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time today, and I know the audience really does appreciate it, and there is so much wisdom, um, and thank you for sharing it with us today. And I know the purpose of the podcast is really for people to be able to take away a few gold nuggets, and I've got a page and a half worth of notes here, um, which I'm going to take away some thoughts that, ah, okay, I hadn't thought about that in that particular way, so I'm going to integrate that. So thank you personally from me for for uh, teaching me some things here today. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. What a great conversation with a talented communicator who is doing such great things in the interests of not just Australia, but around the world, solving some of those bigger problems. It's uh, It must be a great job. And she is doing a superb job there at the CSIRO. So thanks to you. Uh, And thanks to Tanya. And that's it for this week. But I'll be back at the same time in two weeks' time. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.